This is the Creative Agency Podcast, where we explore the strategies, aspirations, methods, and mistakes behind growing and maintaining a successful creative agency. Greetings. It is I, your Creative Agency Podcast host, Christopher Charles Bolton I. We have a really great interview today with Robbie Russell of Planet Argon. And no, Planet Argon is not actually a faraway planet where redheads are considered evil. It's actually a Portland-based design and development agency that specializes in building apps and websites using a programming language known as Ruby on Rails. Robbie dropped by the Murmur office to talk about how he founded Planet Argon instead of taking a job in music tech. And he shares his thoughts on agency growth, onboarding, and more. Robbie has three really great takeaways for you guys at the end of the show, so be sure not to miss them. Um, even if your agency doesn't have anything to do with programming or web development, there's lots of great business insights in this podcast, so be sure to listen in. By the way, do you love the show? Does it have any horrible flaws? Are there any topics you'd like to see featured? Do you want more of this or less of that? Do you hate the music intro? I actually composed that in GarageBand all by myself. Um, I'd love to hear your opinion. So if you'd like to connect with me, you can. Believe it or not, I do answer emails. So if you'd like to brush elbows with an uber famous podcast celebrity like myself, all you have to do is drop me a line at chris at creativeagencypodcast.com. On that note, let's get to the interview. All right. Well, I'm here with Robbie Russell of Planet Argon. Welcome to the Creative Agency Podcast. Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, so we start out maybe with a little bit about um, who Planet Argon is and how it began. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So Planet Argon started back in 2002 as a freelancing project for myself. I was kind of moonlighting on the weekends and such while I was working with a, a local company, an event management company, and I did uh, back-end development for them. And so uh, I found myself wanting to work on a lot more open source related projects, which we were not allowed to use at work. So I was able to start, I was getting approached by different people to work on some small projects. And I was like, well, this would be great to use like PHP or Perl with. So I would uh, do some like projects on the weekends and such. And so I decided to do that under the name Planet Argon because I thought that might make me look a little bit bigger, uh -huh. maybe one day. And then uh, we'll see where that would you know kind of take us. So the name actually came from uh, one of my favorite books from when I was a teenager called Still Life with Woodpecker from Tom Robbins. Oh, right. I won't give any of the, the details about how that name came about within that, but there's a hint for you. <laughs> I've read that book and I don't remember, so now I'll have to go and check. <laughs> so um, you're basically a, how would you describe what your agency, agency does? It's always a good question. So, and I think it's always evolving, but so Planet Argon is a uh, design development agency based in Portland, Oregon. We have 16 people. And primarily we've, over the years, what ended up happening was back in 2000, late 2004, I started freelancing full-time. So I was able to quit my job and just do freelancing full-time. And I worked with a, another designer on a lot of projects. And in late 2004, I was actually looking to get a job at CD Baby. So I interviewed with Derek that ran CD Baby at the time and uh, was considering to stop doing freelance work and actually go work there because as a musician, I thought this would be like the perfect place to work. And I was a big fan of CD Baby and they worked with cool technology. So, well, you know that I worked at CD Baby. Did you? <laughs> yeah, I worked there for eight years. Oh, wow. <laughs> what sort of work did you do at CD Baby? Um, I, uh, I did marketing and uh, I started in customer service and I did marketing. Oh, wow. We might have, we could have worked together. <laughs> I know. Uh, so Derek actually interviewed me in 
uh, my living room one day. I remember eating like this big plate of pineapple in our interview and we had a good conversation and he's pretty much offered me verbally the job and knowing how Derek is in hindsight, I shouldn't have taken that too seriously. <laughs> so then he went away for the holiday break and he was stuck in Lake Tahoe for, for a week or two in a blizzard and he had a Ruby on Rails or he had a book about Ruby. Ruby on Rails was kind of like a new thing and he came back and said, you know what, I, I said I was gonna hire you but I found a developer in San Diego that uses this, this new framework called Ruby on Rails and I want to rebuild CD Baby with Ruby on Rails. And I was like, oh, okay. So he said, but if you pick it up, I'll hire you in a few months. And I said, okay, that's fair. So I started diving into Ruby on Rails and I fell in love with it and I started blogging a lot. And then uh, what ended up happening was I ended up getting a book deal a few months later to write a book about Ruby on Rails. And I had a blog called Ruby on Rails. And all of a sudden, the freelance world turned upside down and all of a, lots of companies were approaching me to offer me jobs, to work on big projects. And I was like, oh shit, what's going on? So Derek was like, hey, are you still interested? And I was like, I don't know, let's, let's see where this kind of takes me. So, and then I think towards the end of that year, uh, we made the decision to turn into an LLC and just, we ended up hiring about eight developers all within about two or three weeks and became an agency. Wow. So we had a couple <laughs> of big projects at the time and so let's just see where this goes. So, you know, it's a bit of being in the right place at the right time. Worst case, I could just fall back to what I was doing before, or mm -hmm. I could call Derek and see if he still wanted to hire me. So, <laughs> so at that time, if Ruby on Rails was pretty new, did, were these programmers that you hired already proficient in Ruby on Rails? Yeah, at the time, anyone anyone back then that had six months of Ruby experience was kind of considered an expert. <laughs> wow. Uh, I mean, a lot of them had had other experience with other programming languages and stuff. Like I came back from, you know, I was working with .NET in the past and PHP and Perl and some Python at previous positions that I had. So Ruby was just like a new flavor and it totally simplified how we were approaching web apps at the time. And, you know, since I was in early in that process and was kind of really prolific in my blogging, I wrote a lot of blog content about how to do things with Ruby on Rails because there wasn't really that much documentation. So being a thought leader in a six month old industry was kind of a um, kind of it was it, it worked out well for me and then uh, so I was able to take I decided because I knew these developers that were that really wanted to work with Ruby on Rails full-time but they're working other languages no one was really hiring people at the time to work with Ruby are you still sort of occupying that role as sort of blogger and thought leader in in Ruby and Rails or or beyond admittedly no so I think most of my Ruby on Rails development personally kind of wrapped up I want to say it's been about five years since I've done a lot of heavy development work. I'll jump in on some projects now and then just to help out. But I think once we got the team to a certain size that I was able to kind of step back and just act as more as a mentor for the team. And primarily a lot of my role focuses on more on sales and marketing related activities. And so now when I blog, it's a lot more related to, you know, the running an agency. So you said you have 17 employees, um, 16, at the or 16 employees. And uh, do you work with freelancers as well? Very rarely. I don't think we've worked with the freelancer in a couple of years, but we really like, maybe this is really selfish, but I like, you know, we're all located in Portland. We have an office. We don't have any remote developers. A couple people, couple people work at home a few days a week to kind of cut down on some of the distractions because we do have an open uh, office floor plan and they, you know, if they want to do some laundry in the background or something, whatever the hell they want to do, that's, that's fine <laughs> with me. So I don't really care, but as long as we're all coming together in the office on a regular basis. And so and the idea of just bringing freelancers into that process just doesn't make sense with the kind of clients we work with because they're typically long-term ongoing relationships versus like we have like a project that's going to be in our queue for three months and then we're done with it. So 
we because we're building long-term relationships with our clients we want the clients to feel like there's a lot of continuity between person to person and mm-hmm. the project you had some growth last year i believe i was sort of looking at your year in review how many people did you hire last year i think we hired let's see probably four or five people last year admittedly uh three weeks ago we had to let go of three people oh, so wow. that was kind of like a we did grow last year and because we had a lot of good we was our best growth year um, we ever had and then we kind of had a shitty q1 and so we, that's kind of the reality of sometimes the ebb and flow there so that we were up at we were at 19 people at the end of last year and now we're at 16 so oh man that's rough <laughs> it happens yeah this is the it was the first time that we had ever actually had to do like a quasi mass layoff in that sense so um, laying off like approximately 15 percent of your team was kind of well it is what it is but yeah, yeah. so uh what you you said that your role is sort of in in marketing and, and running the business um what what is sort of your day-to-day look like usually admittedly my role has been switching more the last few months to moving out of like day-to-day operations and more and just focusing primarily on sales and marketing i think kind of back to the whole point about us needing to have layoffs like that kind of speaking to the point that there's that managing the ebb and flow better so i think you get that that issue as an agency where you get really busy and then it gets really hard to uh prioritize you know introductions and follow-uping on potential projects you know i think it was it's funny that last year you know, you get in that situation where we're so busy that you're turning away really awesome projects because you're like, we're booked for months. Yeah. And then like four or five months later, you're like, I really wish those people were still around. You know, as I said, it's like sales, following up with prospects, you know, answering questions, checking with people on the team, just trying to also just be present as much as I can. So having some of that in the studio banter with different people, on the t- you know, just seeing how things are going on in their personal lives, making, you know, that stuff's important. And then also just checking in with our existing clients, make sure things are going smoothly. And, you know, I do a lot of uh, calls and lunches with our clients just to make sure that they're getting what they need from the team. And so I can keep thinking about how we can be better tomorrow than we are today. So why do clients come to Planet Argonne opposed to, to another agency? That's a $200,000 question. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, what I've learned over the last few years is a lot of the clients we actually get that we, that we sign on with have existing applications already. And so... They've hit a point, typically their freelancer has got a full-time job that happens quite often, or it's the second or third freelancer that's got a full-time job and they're kind of getting tired of going down that path and they're ready for kind of a more mature process and team and they want more continuity as I was speaking to about earlier. You know, a lot of our clients we've, we're working with for, you know, three to five years on average. Uh, I think our longest running client right now is about a little over eight years now. And so... Maintaining the same Ruby on Rails application that we started back in late 2007, early 2008. So when we can build that sort of long-term relationship, it's one it's easier for the bottom lines to be like we have this baseline regular income. But with our clients, we're able to talk about them with like on annual budgets and be like, all right, you have this app. You know, it's gonna have to keep getting maintained. We're gonna work on it, some incremental improvements, and maybe we have some projects above and beyond a retainer type work that we can work on and spec out for you. But uh, so they're looking for that kind of flexibility to know between just kind of in and out projects versus like ongoing maintenance and support. And so we kind of fill that ongoing maintenance and support role pretty well, kind of how our team is kind of very much optimized for. So, so, um, in that case, is that that's sort of the expectation you set when you, when you meet with a potential client, like basically we're looking for an ongoing relationship. This is going to be, you know, a monthly fee and maybe project work on top of that. Yeah. So how, how much do these projects cost? Like what are people paying on a monthly basis? So we typically, I mean, this is like a way to 
make sure that the project's big enough for us to even really consider where we'd be looking at like the smallest projects we typically have on a monthly basis are about a $5,000 a month budget. And that gets you, I don't know, approximately 30 hours with our team. And you can prioritize that, you know, however you want with your backlog and such. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, typically it's anywhere between five and 50 K a month for most of our clients. And then just multiply that by, you know, we usually have, I think each year, 20 to 30 different clients that we're working with each year. Mm -hmm. So, and so do you have even have an hourly rate or is it like, yeah, we do. So we actually build down to the minute and admittedly, I mean, unless the team just hasn't been honest with me, we don't have a culture where people really that concerned or frustrated about time tracking Mm -hmm. because they know that's how we feed ourselves. And so we bill hourly and our rates range between like 140 to about 200 an hour depending on the experience level of the developer or designer that's on the project. And then we also bill for project management time as well. In that. What, uh, do you use a time tracking app that everyone uses or is everyone sort of responsible for their own time? Yeah, we all use Harvest and we've got a nice little setup there. So we have, you know, we have all our different project buckets that we bill against. We have budgets. We also bill for all of our internal projects so we can track how much time we're spending on marketing and sales, how much time we're spending on our own website, just so we can kind of gauge, you know, how we're dividing and conquering across everything so we also because we have like a bit of a billable expectation from our team you know on a a weekly basis that they're trying to hit their baseline and so that way if we're tracking internal stuff and external we can they can they don't feel like there's this conflict of like i have to prioritize only the client stuff because we also think that a lot of the project internal stuff that we do is also important or if they're even doing professional development work like that's also considered billable in our world. So yeah, we're trying to um, get a little bit better at tracking both client work and and our internal processes and stuff like that. And we just started using ten thousand feet, which is sort of rather than you know clicking something that starts tracking your time, you get assigned a certain amount of hours to work on something by the project manager, and then you sort of confirm whether you hit that goal, went over, went under. So it's a little bit more loosey goosey as far as you know you might not get. It's not down to the minute, but we have not had the greatest success time tracking so we feel like hopefully this um system will be able to stick right (laughs) nice well good luck with that i know you know there's been a lot of talk in our industry about like value-based pricing and i think that when we do also like iteration-based work too where we'll give a client a target cost and like a a, like a range to be like all right we'll give you this target cost plus or minus 35 percent and if we go above and beyond that 35%, we'll just eat that. And so those are the projects where we feel pretty confident about the scope. And also we will usually bake in a success fee into that. So if we come in on budget and on time, then we'll take the difference of the between the, the target cost and what we actually build against that project and take a success fee. So it's about be like 10% of that difference and we'll use that to reward the team. So that's kind of like a little incentive that, I mean, admittedly, we, we only we've only gotten to do the whole feed to our team so many times over the years, but in a sales discussion that ends up being really powerful. Like when I telling them what we do that, they're like, Oh great. You you have some skin in the game as well. So, yeah, yeah. so I think there's that, like you guys aren't going to just try to always hit the 35% plus. And the other part of that is just reminding clients that we don't really want to take every possible hour it takes to do complete a project. We're interested in getting in and out of projects as far as the, uh, like specific scopes of work. Cause you know, if we, how can we get to achieve the goal with the least amount of time so that they can save some money for other things? And then, you know, and then the other aspect of that being, you know, there's a lot of interesting projects to work on. So it's just, let's not like just drag one out forever. So. Right. Exactly. What has been one of the biggest challenges that um, Planet Argon has faced as a business? You know, about three to four years ago, I remember thinking we had a lot of conversations about recruitment 
thinking that, you know, as Portland, Portland's grown a lot more since then as well. But at the time, there were more startups popping up in Portland. And from a talent perspective, it was becoming really difficult to compete to attract those like, to developers. And so we kind of were like, how the hell are we going to get anyone to work for us when we're competing with, you know, some of the other companies here in town? And, you know, we can't compete cost-wise the same way. So I think for experienced developers, it was starting to become very clear that like we might actually have a problem here with the technology stack that we've chosen and, you know, just competing with uh, different, with other companies in town. So, and we were actually considering like maybe we need to start outsourcing some, you know, looking to external outsourcing agencies and we maybe just focus on managing the projects because we're really good at that part. And so we kind of, you know, we kind of thought about this. We even did like a, a project where we tested that out on, a, on our own product just to see how that would work by us managing a project and kind of delegating that out to another team. And it was so painful. And so <laughs> I was just like, it was also a really interesting experience to just to know what it's like for some of our clients that or potential clients that don't hire us and they end up hiring a team like in, whether that be in uh, India or Eastern Europe or something. So that was eye-opening and, you know, we were like, I don't think we want to do that exactly. So, but since then, a number of uh, coding schools have opened up and that created a new talent pool that we didn't even anticipate. And so uh, we've, some of our best developers we have now, we recruited from Epicodus mm-hmm. and Portland Code School. And so what we found was like, there was people that had a lot of the soft skills from a past career and they're like maybe in their mid thirties and they're like, you know, I'm not interested in going on this path anymore, but they, they get into coding and they're like, Hmm, this looks interesting. And they go through a coding school for, you know, three or six months or whatever, however long those programs are. And they're, they're eager and ready to go. And we're like, wow, this is amazing. Let's groom these people. So we've had a lot of success the past few years of uh, attracting uh, a more diverse team as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's helped turn the, the tide. So now we have, I think on a weekly basis, we probably get three to five unrequested applicants a week nice. of developers. And so wow. now it's just a matter of finding the work to, so we can hire those people. Yeah. Yeah. I know that we're, you know, at Murmur Creative, we, we've kind of gone through some rapid growth in the last couple of years and we're not super competitive as far as benefits and pay goes. And uh, yeah, so we have that challenge too of sort of like offering the value and not being able to hire necessarily like super experienced people, but we right. have hired some awesome, super eager young people who are kicking butt for us. So that's, that's awesome. I think one of the other things that I found with some of the folks that we've hired is, you know, one of the things we look at is we're as an agency, you know, one of our big, you know, our competitors are product companies, right? And so for, especially on the developer side, there's kind of like that idea of a developer that just puts their hoodie over their head and put their headphones on and they just want to hide behind their monitor. And in the agency world, that's like the worst kind of developer you can probably bring into your team if they're <laughs> going to be working directly with your client and with other people on your team. So, so we're not, we don't look for those sorts of people and we're looking for people that want, that want to, you know, work with people first and foremost and solve problems like business problems and, uh, can communicate well is another asp- you know, important piece of that. And then as for any of the development skills, we can help them with and coach them through you know, becoming bigger and better developers there. So uh, as we're, you know, as we've hired people looking for people that want also a diverse set of problems to solve. And so when you're working on a product, you kind of will end up at a big development team and you'll have your areas and you're kind of siloed at times, but you know, you'll have a team to work with, but you're kind of focused on specific areas of like a product. Whereas we can be like, you know, if you start getting burnt out on a certain project, we can just move you to a different client project for a while and get some different experience. Be like, all right, 
you know, that was a really hard sludging long project. Let's put you on something that you're going to have some good win quick wins and f boost some of your confidence after maybe that really difficult project. So that diversity that we can offer our developers, I think is something that we can sell as agencies. So does Planet Argon, do you focus on any sort of business vertical or do you work with any kind of, every kind of business that comes to you? Is it, do you have a particular niche as far as clients go? Historically, no, it's been everything. And about a year, a little over a year ago, we, we asked ourselves this question as we reorganized, we went through a whole process of our leadership team of rethinking our long-term vision because we never had any sort of long-term vision for the business outside of let's make more money than we're spending and have fun doing it, which is great. But after a decade, we're like, all right, we got that part down. Where are we going? You know, part of our exercise of thinking about our ideal future, we talked about the kind of projects that we've worked on over the years and which ones we felt we contribute. We had the best, biggest impact on our community in, in many ways and an industry that you know we had worked on a number of projects over the years that stood out was healthcare. Mm -hmm. and so within healthcare, there's a lot of need for good interaction design, visual design, a lot of thinking about how applications are developed and maintained. And there's a lot of archaic antiquated systems in that world that just increase the frustration of patients, people that are providing health healthcare and the people that are administering healthcare. There's a lot of work to be done in that world. And so uh, we, we set our goal for ourselves that in three years, we want at least half of our clients to be within healthcare. So that's something we've been focusing more of our marketing and efforts on towards attracting more clients in that world. That's cool. Well, how would you describe your project management philosophy? Don't surprise anyone. <laughs> you know, I came from a background where, you know, I was really embracing agile methodologies and I think that word has been overly abused in the last few years mm -hmm. and I get a little cynical. Actually, there was a client we were, we won, I think back in like late last year and a couple of weeks into a project, I had the client call me and said, you're not doing agile, right? And hmm. I was like, what do you think that means exactly? And they're like, well, in agile, you're supposed to make sure you always follow this process of doing this and then push it out to staging, get approval, and then push it out to production. The, pro the problem in that scenario was that something in the production environment had blown up and a developer was trying to get a quick fix out there because it was hurting their sales. And that fix didn't fix it right away. And so she said that we were not being agile. So what we were trying to do in that scenario was doing the right thing that we thought was appropriate for that specific scenario rather than being really process heavy. So I think there's been some damage done in our industry where people have this idea that agile means that you're following a very rigid process and it's not. That, that's actually the opposite of what exactly. the word agile means. Exactly. <laughs> so I mean, I encounter that from the time to time. So, but back to the like whole, don't surprise me, you know, kind of motto there. It's whether that's don't surprise your project manager, don't surprise your client, try and try to reduce the amount of surprises we have. So, and I think that requires us to be proactive and manage expectations clearly. I don't think there's anything such as overly communicating with your clients. If anything, too often I hear from potential clients that, you know, the developers or team we worked with kind of, we would talk for a little bit and then they go off for a few weeks and come back and then it wasn't quite what we were looking for. And there's kind of like a lack of insight into what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I think communicating early and often with clients is pretty important. And so I think that just comes back to what Agile kind of encourages, but mm -hmm. I think that's, if anything, that's the one thing that we're really trying to focus on. How, how do you keep in contact with clients? Do you just use email or phone or? So we use Jira, 
for most of our work. And we've had that set up with a bunch of different types of workflow, whether it's a design related project or a development feature for an application or a bug fix, or even if it's a client's requesting an estimate that has a certain type of ticket request and that goes through a workflow. And so we'll do a lot of our communication back and forth through that because it kind of helps guide the client and our team through a specific workflow for that type of work. So that helps quite a bit. And then, you know, there's, there's, there is email. Uh, we no longer use Basecamp. It's been a couple of years since we've done that because we just kind of saw that Basecamp was acting as more of a, a pretty email tool at the time for us because we don't use it for task management or anything. Mm-hmm. So our, we do train our clients on how to use like Jira pretty competently so that they can you know, be pretty effective in managing their, their queue and such. And then I think our project managers typically have weekly phone calls with their clients or if they're local, then we'll meet with them every few weeks as well in person. So our developers have set up Jira, but I haven't actually have I haven't actually dealt with it. We were using Asana for a while, project management stuff, and and now we're sort of using a combination of ten thousand feet and uh, Jira for the developers. But so you're basically like assigning tasks to the client, sort of in Jira. Is that how it works? Like we need content, or we need you to approve this, or that? right? So it'll be like. There's very explicit stages. Like let's walk through an example where a client submits a bug. There's like, hey, we have a bug, and they attach a screenshot and URL, and they explain what they were doing. We're like, oh, okay, let's help you out. So that will go through the process and get assigned to a developer, you know, so that developer can, so they can re-trigger the uh, the issue. And once they got a, a fix ready, they'll push it out to a staging server and then assign it back to the client, and that says ready or review on staging. And so the client's like, okay, this is ready to review on staging, and they'll test it make sure it works now. And if it does, then it'll say, great, that's approved on staging. It'll go back to the developer to say, ready for deployment to production. So that's the way the client's saying this is ready to go out. And once the developer then pushes it out to production, that'll push it back to the client again to review on production, make sure it's good out there, and then they'll approve it and it'll come to a close. And so that way there's like kind of like a very nice organized process that for how to handle the, the best case scenario for how to manage those projects. So, and you, of course with that, Jira also lets, lets allows us to skip those steps too, and just get, you know, like we're just going to push it to production. Now it's ready for production. So it depends on the context of each ticket. Gotcha. So, so what are your your growth goals for for Planet Argon? I know you just laid off some employees. What what is your ideal? Like how where do you see yourself in five years? So we actually set out with a ten year plan, and the size of that company was approximately eighty to ninety people in wow. size, and so. And that would be in multiple cities. And so mm-hmm. like our long-term plan is to branch out a bit more. What we really wanted to do is we realized that there's a scenario where we're preventing our people from growing at our company because we're kind of the barriers as the leadership team. And so if we're kind of at this point, there's nowhere really for people to grow without expanding the size of the team so that we can continue to bring in new talent into the into the team. And we don't want to just become a factory of training people up and then losing them to bigger companies. And so we need to give our team uh, kind of a pathway to grow their career as long as they, they choose to continue working with Planet Ergon. So, um, so that's our kind of 10 year plan as being more of a much larger company. And there's a lot of like personal goals behind that between people in the leadership team about what we want to be doing in the future for more of a mentorship role rather than, you know, day to day and allowing the people that are currently really amazingly doing most of the work and, managing our company to be the ones leading it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about onboarding. Can you sort of describe what your onboarding process is like? So this is an interesting question because we actually just started a new task force for revisiting our onboarding process. Mm -hmm. So we actually pulled in people from different parts of the team just to talk about like reassess what 
our clients' experience is like. So I'll talk about how we're currently doing it and maybe a little bit about what we're thinking about doing as we go forward. So right now, you know, as I mentioned, most of the clients we get have existing applications. And so they usually have some experience with probably ticket systems and working with developers at some point and designers. So what we're trying to do at that point is, you know, if they have an existing application, we'll go through a process and do initial code review and audit, and then um, kind of give them an assessment of what's under the hood and making sure that they understand the good and the bad of what we found. What we don't want to do is be in a scenario where like six months from now, where there's an issue with the project, we know, we don't, want, we don't want to complain about their application. Like the previous developers left a big mess and that's, so we want to talk about that stuff early, get it on the table and say, okay, what's our roadmap for cleaning up some of this code base if it needs to be done? Uh, is there a lack, you know, is there test coverage? Is there, do they follow conventions? Is it going to be, is this going to be a project that we can be successful with? I think is really what we're trying to ask on our end. And from the client's perspective, that's giving them an opportunity to kind of understand what they paid for and, you know, in their investment over the years in this current application. And so what we'll do from that point is go through a strategy phase, kind of more on like their business strategy, where how they got to where they are, where they're looking to go. And then from there, we'll kind of work out a couple different pathways to introducing them to the rest of the team and thinking about their ongoing um, backlog and such and how we're, how we're going to prioritize. And typically when they contact us, they're in a scenario where they have work, they have a list of things that they really want to get worked on really soon. And so it's just a matter of trying to figure out, all right, how can we start prioritizing that and fitting into the schedule? So once we get through that initial kind of sales discovery phase with them, like our project managers will typically schedule time to walk them through our tools so they can get familiar with Jira. And that's kind of the area that we're looking to revisit a little bit in the sense of what we found is that when you do that big intro for some clients, they'll forget about half of the stuff you talked about in a walkthrough. So we provide um, some like a PDF document that shows them they can look up for details. And so we're looking to maybe branch out to more of a, um, knowledge-based system mm -hmm. and some like short little video tutorials that we can maybe send them once a week in an email be like hey here's just a little reminder on how to do something really fancy in jira and build some of those kind of training tools to help our clients become like really badass customers rather than just being competent customers right so i think that's the one thing that we're and this actually came from the idea from if you're familiar with kathy sierra's book badass Mm -mm. So Kathy Sierra's, she's a, um, was a developer designer over the years who's written a lot about the customer experience. And she used to talk about uh, cameras as an example of where um, a company like Canon would spend so much money on marketing their product. Like here's this really fancy SLR camera and it's like really sexy. Even the box is nice and kind of moderately sexy. When you open it, you get this black and white manual that tells you how to like turn the dials. Yeah. And it's not really designed in a way that really helped their customers become really amazing photographers. And she's always been a very big proponent of saying, um, that's an opportunity to really help your customers build brand loyalty. And so, so I was like, how can I apply something like that to our industry? Nice. That's cool. So how much of that sort of technical discovery happens before someone's signed on the dotted line? So we actually use that as like a, a way to filter out potential clients that are not going to be a good fit where we charge for that code review and audit. So I, I will admittedly sometimes where if it's a, I think they're maybe a little gun shy about, you know, giving us 5k to review their code base, I'll be like, all right, you know what I'll do is you give me access to your code base. I'll, I'll spend an hour myself, look under the hood a little bit, but you're not going to get to talk to my team yet. And so, and then I'll be like, I'll look for a couple of little sanity checks. Usually I'm looking to see what versions of soft, software they're using and see if they follow the few conventions 
And then at that point, I'm trying to sell them on a code audit that actually will have a dollar price attached to it. So at that point, they're paying for everything they're in now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny how often, you know, clients will ask for that sort of spec work and they don't even think about it. I mean, today we had someone e email us and they're like, well, can you tell us first what's wrong with our website? <laughs> so we're like, yeah, we can. <laughs> but, you know, like how much time are we supposed to spend on this? What, what do you want us to actually prove that we can do it? You know, so it's kind of walking the line. We basically just did like, here's like the top five or six things wrong with your website. And like, if you want us to actually review it, we could give you a proposal for, you know, like a, a more in-depth review. That's actually, that's an interesting, I was just at this thing called the owner camp the other day, this last weekend in Montreal. And it's the second one I've been to. And so it's like, a, um, there'll be about 25 different digital agency owners come, mm -hmm. come together and we'll have really open conversations about everything, um, really scary stuff. And it's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's been, it's basically group therapy for like three days. And so this came up uh, by a couple of folks and they were talking about, you know, like some companies were like, we'll never do that. We'll never give free, you know, free work away like that. Um, and one of the, one of them, the folks there, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he was talking about how they win some of their best projects that way mm -hmm. by actually not so much doing a lot of design work, but just baking that into their costs, knowing that they're not going to get them all, but that if you give them a sampling of what you're capable of doing, but just to get their ideas, because they're kind of in this weird scenario of putting yourself in the cl potential client's perspective, you're basing your decisions off of someone's portfolio, but you're not really getting an opportunity to collaborate with that company. And so I think if you can frame it around like, all right, I'm not going to give you like some mock-ups maybe in the design world, but what it will do is maybe we'll meet with you for 30 minutes or an hour and we'll talk shop about your project. We're not gonna write any of this down, but as soon as, soon as the moment you want me to document anything, then we're gonna start charging you. So if you can give away a little bit of your secret sauce being your ability to collaborate with them, then <laughs> maybe there's, uh, you might be leaving some money on the table, I think at that point. So how can you be helpful and, you know, Immediately, like, so this week right now, we're actually in a, I'm actually tasking our team with doing just that on a potential project where we're going to have a 30 minute call with um, some folks on the other company's side. And I'm like, let's just test this out a little bit. Let's, let's give them a sampling of what, how we think and, and see if there's a potential that we can collaborate really well together. And I think the rest of it will just be really easy. So we'll see if that changes. There's a, a website that I just found this guy, um, win without pitching yeah blair blair okay yeah i read his sort of manifesto about you know not giving up free work and but yeah there is that other side of it that some agencies will do huge extravagant pitches a lot of pre-work in order to win especially a really big client you know where you know the payoff is so big that sometimes maybe it's worth doing some of that up front it's a delicate balance and i'm familiar with that book as well and um, he's actually spoke at a thing called owner summit earlier this year and he did this whole talk about in Blairtopia, companies don't do these sorts of things. And one of them, another one was like, you can never leave your company. I remember that being like this, like, well, how would you change how you run your agency if you knew that you could never leave? You, you don't even get to retire. You're like, this is going to be the thing that you, you, you look over until you die. So I think the other thing was just like, there's a spec work and being, that's a delicate line there. Another thing that people talked about was when you can, when you have a client that you've been working with for a while and you have a good relationship if they ask you for sometimes for like a little thing, 
Right? Even if they're not asking you to do it for free, just consider doing it every once in a while. Be like, hey, that, don't worry, that one's on me. That can go a long way. It's like if you go to your mechanic and they, you just, they fix some really small thing and they're just like, don't worry about it. They're building like a long-term relationship right there. And we could probably benefit from doing more of that, I think, in our industry and not being put in a situation where the client feels like they're being nickeled and dimed all mm-hmm. the time. So they'll remember that even if they're not, yeah, they'll remember. But another thing I was also would advocate there would be put them on the invoice you know, remind them that you did that. Yeah. And so have that be like a, you know, a reduction in their, their bill. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, Murmur Creative starting out because we had so little tracking, we knew that we were giving away all sorts of stuff and letting scope creep take over and, and clients bully us, but the clients didn't know it and we didn't know how to track it. So there was just that sort of kind of chaos as far as like tracking, like how profitable we were, or what work, you know, what projects were worth doing. And we're getting closer now to be able to track some of that stuff. But yeah, it's so important to be able to say, okay, we're giving this to you for free. It's not part of the project. It's not in the contract. Right. Like, and we want to be able to do that as a company. But then we also need to be able to put on the brakes when something's suddenly becoming drastically out of scope <laughs> and it's not going to make anybody any money. And right. Yeah, it's a delicate balance. It, but it has so much to do with communication and, and being able to track that stuff and have like a contract that protects you and that the client can understand. So yeah, it's, it's tricky. We're getting better. <laughs> That's good. It's it, as echoing what you're talking about is that whole aspect of where you, you kind of feel like you get screwed out of a couple of projects over the years and you're like, ah, but, but you realize it's your fault. Right. And so you then switched around and be like, all right, we gotta be really careful and mindful about how we're building our time. And like, we want to make sure we're getting paid for everything that we can. So sometimes that in your culture, if that manifests to being so meticulously granular about everything that that can be really problematic with your clients like i've had clients tell me like i feel like you're nickeling and diming me i'm like how did we do that like over something like really small or like we're talking about a couple hundred dollars and you're just like this is not worth the frustration on anyone's end right now like as as an example not that long ago we had a client whose their dns contact was kind of mia and nobody had keys a way to get in and make any dns changes and so and our client didn't know what the hell DNS that was. And yeah, so we're yeah. like in the situation where we're like, oh, we need access. And they're like, we don't know what to do. Going and us speaking to the domain register and trying to help them navigate this. And we're talking a couple of hours of trying to like work with them on this. And meanwhile, they're racking up hundreds of dollars on our bill for them. They're frustrated because like the per- previous person left. And I'm just like, a couple of weeks later, I'm like, I really wish we just said, you know what, don't worry about it. It's on us. Because like, that was just like a frustration point all around. I'm like, that shit happens. And could have been us. I am more interested in the long-term relationship than I am about a few hours of one of our developers' times to help navigate that. So yeah, as long as you let them know, yeah, with something technical like that, like DNS. I mean, we have that issue too. Is people don't understand. They're like, I didn't even know I had something called DNS. Right. <laughs> you know? like, I thought I paid you to do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, sorta. <laughs> so you're the main, sort of the main person involved in the onboarding process, at least initially. Initially, up until the point where we do a code audit, and that's when they'll get introduced to a team. And so we, we break up our development team into multiple teams. So each team will have a couple of developers and a team lead who's just kind of typically a more senior developer or who we think is also just really good. It might not necessarily just be based on scenario, but also just on how good of a communicator they are and they can help lead and push push things forward. So they'll work with that team and probably a designer, like our design lead on getting onboarded and then go through the process of 
depending on the type of project work it is, to move through that discovery phase and then getting ready to actually start working on new stuff for them. How, how do you balance being sort of attentive with your clients and um, versus, you know, being annoying? Well, one of the most important things that we try to explain to clients early on when we're talking on like in the kind of early sales discussions is how much time do you have to manage this project from your end? And I think given the kind of work that we do, we require a significant amount of work time of availability from our clients. And so if this is a project that they can only interface with us outside of normal work hours, it's not going to work. And, you know, they need to be available potentially an hour, two hours a day, potentially. The big thing is on is being available. And so I think from that perspective, they're not being annoyed if we're asking them to help us move things forward. And so I think if you get in a scenario where you have to keep badging your clients, then probably a red flag about, you know, maybe they don't have enough time or this is not a priority for them at this point in time. So, so when do you know, um, it's time to fire a client. If you were to put yourself in your client's shoes, do they feel stuck with you? Or do they are they making a conscious decision to continue working with you? Rarely have I seen a project work well long-term where you feel like the client is completely dependent on you and not in the good kind of dependent. Like when you have this sort of codependency situation, you both want to be coming in that voluntarily and continue to like renew your vows with one another. So <laughs> I think I keep an eye out for that. And so sometimes that some things I notice there with like a client starts or they start communicating that they're not really seeing the value in what you know, like I've spent X number of dollars with you folks typically is not a good sentence, like whatever they're going to follow. With that. <laughs> and so and I just actually had a call like that yesterday. I know that project's not going to work out much longer. And so when that happens, you know, it never feels good. You know, like, how did this even happen? You know, sometimes that stuff sneaks through and maybe you thought they were going to be better of a client than they actually ended up being, or maybe you dropped the ball at some point in the project and it's just really hard to repair that. Or quite often, since, as I mentioned, a lot of the projects we work on were ones we've inherited, those clients have a lot of baggage from previous relationships with mm -hmm. agencies or developers. And so you have to navigate that with them and that doesn't always work out for the best for everybody. So knowing that there's going to be some, some of them will not work out long-term and being okay to say, this isn't a good fit for us is like totally okay. Is there a way that you vet clients to sort of avoid the bad clients? Well, during those initial discussions with a client, so especially if they have an existing app or they work, I'll usually ask about what their experience is with the previous developers. That can be really telling depending on how they frame it. So if they're really negative about the other agency, Maybe the other agency was just really shitty at what they did, but they'll, I think a good client will understand where they'll have some appreciation for what they did. But if they're coming across like they got screwed out of everything, that might be a red flag that you could be just not the next company, especially if that's happened with like two or three different agencies in the past, you're probably just going to be the next agency they fail with. Uh, you can also, you know, research them, ask for references, ask to speak to the previous agencies. Even if they don't tell you, ask if you can find out who worked on it. Usually it might be in someone's portfolio. Like mm -hmm. I'll go look and see if I can find, I'll search for like the client name plus like portfolio and like other keywords that think that might show up in another agency's website. Cause most companies want to promote the stuff that they do. So try to find a contact there and just like, Hey, how did that go? You know, other agency owners typically would be pretty honest to like, yeah, I'm just warning you, you know, you know, tread carefully or something. So those are sorts of things I do to, to do some research. Or Yeah, we, we ended up with a client last year that had basically left a trail of burning agencies in their wake. <laughs> and um, they kind of warned us to it, but we were honestly sort of desperate for business and took them on. And it was 
it was a horrible relationship and who knows what what sort of damage they've caused since <laughs> isn't it amazing how we change our filters when we need more work it, yeah. it happens and i think you have to make sure that you communicate that with the team clearly because if the i think the worst thing to do is like put your team in the situation of having to deal with a shitty client and if they don't know why you're doing it you might lose them so what's is it more important to retain your team or is it or retain those client relationships that aren't working out well so that's a delicate balance and i think it can be managed pretty well and but don't expect 100 percent hit you know success rate there so i think that's just unachievable so yeah as an as an example of a, of a time we fired it was a new client it was during that like early discovery phase we had a client come visit us for a day long meeting so they flew into town it was them and one of their employees and i was only around in the meeting we have an all-day tra- strategy session and i'm around usually for the first few hours it's kind of like the you know the intro and kind of do like a nice soft handoff and then i'll leave the team to it um, at the end of the meeting they met the team like how did that go and they're like uh that was really awkward we're like when i had left the meeting it sounded like everything was going great and they're like yeah it was weird the uh the the owner was really kind of like rudely like abusive to his employee in the meet like in a like verbally and like very condescending and like talk over them all the time and just didn't really feel like they valued that person's opinion on anything and it was like why did you invite this person to fly with you for the day to this meeting and that's how you're gonna that's how you collaborate with your next like report and yeah how the hell are you gonna treat us and so before they even got back to the airport i emailed them and said we're gonna refund you every dollar that you spent on the money from us sorry about the plane ticket cost but we're not interested in doing business with you never heard from them again so wow and i remember that story comes up a lot because one of the project managers that we have that was one of their first experiences being in like a new strategy meeting and she said this over and over and over and she tells a story which it's nice when your team shares these stories and i don't have to do it but she's like i never i've never seen a boss do that like they would just make us work with them and you guys actually will like protect us and that's pretty awesome so that's great all right so i always like to ask my guests to provide three takeaways this would be advice for other agencies like yours that were looking to and grow and improve their agency all right let's see first be proactive regardless of whether the task at hand is like a big project or like a small task think about what happens next on whatever you're doing so whether you're having a conversation with a potential client you're trying to fix something or you're doing some design project Make it clear to the client and to each other what the next steps are going to be and be very clear and, and try to make some safe assumptions about what you think those answers are and try to cut out some of the back and forth. If you can just be really good at continuing to remind people to do that, I think it'll make your client's life better. I think it's, just, it's good to like help feed inertia, I think, in that mm-hmm. way. So mm-hmm. Another thing would be to uh, respect each other's personal time. So you're out of work hours. I'm a big advocate for not sending emails to clients or each other outside of like 7 a.m to 6 p.m like Mm -hmm. if you have an email and you're writing even if you want to work a little later just use a tool like boomerang or something and have that email get delivered tomorrow morning in their inbox because people will look at their email in the middle of the night when they're out drinking at a bar i've done this in the past myself (laughs) and i don't need to be looking at that email right then it's unless it's urgent and I think an email is probably not the best way to make send anything urgent after hours. Anyways, just be mindful. So I think really advocate for that sort of thing because I just think I can't tell our clients not to check their emails, but I can try to control when they get email. And I think that also helps set a precedent that we're not available outside of normal work hours. Right. And I think that if we're just really consistent, I think it makes us look like we're more organized with our time and our clients respect, since we're respecting their time, they're going to respect our time. And so just think that's another thing that we try to, do with uh, planet argon and then 
The other thing is pick up the phone. Some of our biggest projects is because I pick up the phone and I talk to someone. We've landed some multi-year projects. We're talking in excess of like a half a million dollars on projects. And I just happen to answer the phone when they were called. Because at that point in time, they're ready to talk to someone. And so I think when you have a website and you encourage them to fill out their form or send you an email, there's just you're going to lose that momentum that they have. They're ready to talk to someone, like they need help. And so talk to them like in the middle of the research phase. Otherwise, you're just going to end up like you're going to be one of many companies that they're talking to because I think if you can cut down on some of that, I mean, they're going to talk to multiple companies, but they're not going to get to talk to anyone as quickly as you. And then you're setting the precedent at that point. So I think that's a powerful position to be in where you can pick up the phone and talk to them. So, Well, thank you so much for joining me here. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, that's been really great advice. I, uh, I think that our listeners will love hearing from you. Have a good day. You've been listening to the Creative Agency Podcast with your host, Chris Bolton. When he's not podcasting or being a dad, he's the Digital Strategy Director at Murmur Creative in Portland, Oregon. Be sure to visit us online at creativeagencypodcast.com.